0: Hey, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to tell you about the crazy events that led up to and continued through my very first ever marathon. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling. Story reading and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Anyone who knows me from the time I was young knows that I wasn't exactly a jock growing up. I played on the high school tennis team, and when I went off to Smith College, there were no distributional requirements outside our major, and certainly no physical activity requirements, so I did nothing but, oh, occasionally get up in the morning to go to class. When I decided to go to West Point, however, that changed just about everything, and and I learned how to run and got quite good at it. Back in the 1980s when triathlons were big, my husband Mike and I would, uh, find them all around Texas at the time where we were stationed. And we would participate in, in triathlons. And, and I did pretty well in those too. The longest triathlon being the Texas Hill Country Triathlon, which was a real butt kicker. <laughs> I remember getting to the last section of that race, which was a 10 mile run after having the uh, completed the one point something mile swim in a lake and a 48 mile bike through Texas Hill Country and then the 10 mile run. I remember, oh gosh, approaching the seven mile point and I had been mostly walking between rest areas. And I remember hearing a man's voice behind me saying, come on, come on, you can, you can, you can make it. And I was thinking, oh, who is this jerk behind me? And I turned around and I saw a man who must have been in his 70s, perhaps, maybe, maybe even 80s. Of course, I was younger then. So maybe he was only 50. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, he caught up with me and gave me great encouragement. And I asked him how many triathlons he had competed in. And he said that this was his first, which I couldn't believe. However, he did tell me that he had done many marathons in his day. And so he was, he was cruising on the, the last 10 miles of this point. So he cheered me on and stayed with me for a couple more miles until we could hear cheering at the finish. And then he left me in his wake. And uh I... I managed to finish, and it was pretty encouraging to know that people of a more mature age could still do cool races. Uh, Mike and I did several adventure races back in the day, but I had never done a marathon. So when our son Nick was an ROTC cadet at the University of New Mexico, his unit was signed up to do the Baton Memorial Death March Marathon in White Sands, New Mexico. And he encouraged me and Mike to come down and do it as well. And so I ended up writing a piece that was published in the 2012 March edition of Colorado Central Magazine, and I would like to share it with you and also tell you a little bit about what I learned about Baton. I had done a couple of half marathons in preparation for my first marathon, but my philosophy for training is more like, um, it's a tapering philosophy where I, I feel like tapering for, oh, a very long time so that I'm well-rested for a race, and then I'll complete a race, and then I'll taper until the next race. So I was perhaps not as prepared as I could have been, even though I had done a lot of time in our local gym on the treadmill uh, training for this. But uh, here's what I wrote. You pick a race with death in the title as your first marathon? A friend chided me. The reason it was easy for me to say yes to this particular event was because of the actual baton death march it commemorated. After reading about what the survivors of that tragic time experienced, I knew there would be no way that I could complain about a single step. And now I'd like to share with you some information about Bataan and the actual death match that occurred. And this information comes from history.com, and I'll provide a link to this on my website along with uh, pictures. I don't remember actually ever learning about Bataan, but let me read something from uh, history.com. The day after Japan bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen 1941, the Japanese invasion of the Philippines began. Within a month... The Japanese had captured Manila, the capital of the Philippines, and the American and Filipino defenders of Luzon, the island on which Manila is located, were forced to retreat to the Bataan Peninsula. For the next three months, the combined U.S.-Filipino army held out despite a lack of naval and air support. Finally, on April 9th, with his forces crippled by starvation and disease, U.S. General Edward King, Jr., and the dates of his life were 1884 to 1958, surrendered his approximately 75,000 troops at Bataan. They were then rounded up by the Japanese and forced to march some 65-plus miles to San Fernando. Uh, The men were divided into groups of about 100 and what became known as the Baton Death March typically took each group around five days to complete. It says the exact figures are unknown, but it is believed that thousands of troops died because of the brutality of their captors who starved and beat the marchers and bayoneted those too weak to walk. Survivors were taken by rail from San Fernando to prisoner of war camps where thousands more died from disease, mistreatment, and starvation. So with that knowledge in mind, and when we showed up to register for baton, there were survivors from that death march there. There were four of them. So uh, back to my piece. With our youngest son, Jake, two great friends and a truck full of gear, we hit the road. Nothing but beautiful skies and gusty winds ahead, which... Within an hour from home, became tornado strength and showed no sign of easing at our destination. It'll die down as soon as the sun sets, my husband Mike threw out. We all hoped he'd be right. We surveyed our parking lot campground, campers struggling everywhere to secure tents. Dust-filled gusts, which blurred our vision and left grit in our mouths. A setting sun and no sign of reprieve from the growing winds. It was fitting that we should have to experience some suffering before the death march. There's no way this can continue all night, I said with conviction. In the tent with Mike and Nick and 50 pound weights, which we used to secure the tent perimeter, our son Jake had decided to sleep in the back of the truck, we tried to sleep as our dome tent shook. With every zipper rattling and threatened to fall in upon us. 10 o'clock. 11. Midnight. We began to giggle. We could hear vague grumblings from our friends in their sleeker tent and knew that we were not the only sleepless ones. I had visions of lifting off the ground and landing in Munchkin Land. One o'clock, and I had to pee. I stumbled out of the tent and made my way across the street to a porta potty and nearly ended my chances of making it to the starting line six hours later. With hair in my eyes, because the wind was just blowing so, so, so crazily, and sand filled mules on my feet, the unexpected dip in the road along the curb took me down hard. My knee slammed onto something sharp, and the force of my hands on the gravel kept me from breaking my nose on the edge of a curb. I got up with difficulty, and although I knew my knee was gushing, my fear was that I had broken my thumb. I somehow managed to do my business then and (laughs) limp back to the tent. Mike and Nick, incredulous that I had done so much damage in so little time— fixed me up with Band-Aids and Motrin, and by 3 a.m., we were giggling again. The wind, remarkably, was continuing to grow in force. For the next two hours, I tried, in vain, to get comfortable. I I remember holding my leg up. Oh my gosh, it was just, it was throbbing. The 5 a.m. Reveille Bugle was a joy to hear over the sound of the slapping tent. By six, I stood outside with hundreds of other groggy, sleep-deprived race participants and knew that I had had the proper prelude to the race which was about to begin. Bloody but not broken, I dressed and walked to the opening ceremonies with my punchy friends and family. Only Jake, who was there to support us, had slept the previous night. The ceremony reminded us, the more than 6,000 runners and attendants, why we were there. When the first wave of runners passed by, I was immediately humbled. Among them were many of the wounded warriors, single and multiple amputees with prosthetic devices, who were running this race to honor the victims and survivors of Bataan. The first half-marathon was rather enjoyable. After all, I had trained for that much. Despite the lack of sleep and the driving winds which hindered uphill movement, I managed to maintain a steady pace and even enjoyed some chats with fellow runners. After a particularly long uphill stretch, I turned to see who owned the shadow at my back. I had noticed the shadow following my steps up the sandy, gusty incline and was irritated that I was the only one blocking the wind. But the shadow was cast by a woman older than I who immediately apologized and then thanked me profusely. "'You inspired me to keep going,' she confessed. I felt a little guilty.' that I had a secret training weapon. Living at 10,200 feet and running at less than half that altitude made it extraordinarily easy to breathe under exertion. Life in Leadville was paying off. I also felt kind of guilty that I was harboring these these grudgy feelings against someone who was allowing me <laughs> to... Uh, be the a windshield for her until I saw her pass me. She was probably about my age that I am right now. <laughs> I know I would like to run behind someone else breaking the wind for me. Well, not breaking wind, but breaking the wind for me. <laughs> All right, back to my story with Gatorade in my camelback and goo in my pocket and and goo is something that's a little it's a little energy packet. It sounds disgusting, but It helped for quick energy. I had more than enough fuel to keep me moving. But by mile 17, I knew that my three months of treadmill training time had run out. The winds which earlier slowed me down, you know, back when I was running uphills, now pushed too forcefully at my back on the downhill sections. And although I would like to have opened my stride and run like a gazelle, I felt more like an arthritic gorilla. Nevertheless, I would make it to the finish line. If I needed to, I would walk. Baton survivors marched for days in sweltering conditions with neither food nor water and abuse the whole way. With just five kilometers remaining, I caught up with a college girl who was also completing her first marathon and we were both ready to walk. When we came to the 25-mile marker, I suggested that we consider running for the last 1.2 miles. Do you want to? she questioned, seeming to need my encouragement to do such an outrageous thing. At that point, I looked ahead to an endless trail of stragglers and sand, so much sand, and said... Let's do it. Together we matched step for step and completed the longest mile I have ever run and crossed the finish line waving our little American flags in the endlessly blowing wind to the applause of countless supporters in just under six hours. Thousands lost their lives back in the Philippines in 1942 and those who survived the torturous 70 mile forced march have lived with the physical and mental scars of the atrocities they endured. For me, this marathon was a box I could check, another proof to myself that I could do more than I wanted to do. No stabbing bayonets to move me along, no abuse, only words of encouragement from spectators and volunteers plentiful aid stations along the way, new soldiers and old soldiers running in groups to keep me motivated. No one made me do it. I did not truly suffer. That ends my piece about my first marathon and I did a couple of marathons after that, one in Moab that was just absolutely crazy. It was an adventure race kind of marathon, and I'm pretty sure my marathon days are over, but it really helps to have perspective when you decide you're going to do something for yourself that's a physical challenge for yourself. Think of what others have endured at the hands of torturers, how they've survived, and, uh, Keep that in mind whenever you feel like you just can't go on or you're just not going to make it because veterans of our past wars have likely endured far more than you ever will. I have links to the Baton Memorial Death March Marathon, which they do each year. I would encourage any of you who might be able to attend either as a supporter or a racer to, to do that race. It really is an amazing experience. I would also encourage you to donate to the Wounded Warrior Project, www.woundedwarriorproject.org. I'll have a link to that on my webpage as well. And if you enjoy this and other episodes, Please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please tell your friends about it. Perhaps you'll even support Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com forward slash preserves, and join me next time when I'll talk about something a little more lighthearted. I promise. Until then, spread a little goo on your toast. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelorel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.